Good morning. Um, I hope your day is going well. My name is Bland. I'm the lead pastor here. I want to welcome you if I haven't had a chance to say hi yet. Um, I'll be at the welcome table across the hall after the service. Um, but good to have you all with us today. As you've already heard from, we're continuing in our series through Genesis. <clears throat> Back when uh, I was a youth minister, which was a few years ago, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, had a, a really, I had a really rough experience one time with a, a pastor uh, actually, with the, the um, couple of leaders in the church and the pastor. Uh, I, uh, things were going well with the youth ministry, were growing. We'd seen some kids uh, get baptized. And, um, but uh, two members of the, the youth leadership team, adults, were, didn't kind of like the way I, they tried to tell me what to do. And I kind of tried to use what I could, but didn't really listen well. I mean, I was 23 at the time or 22, so I don't listen well back then. Um, still, maybe not. But. Uh, <laughs> I, I ended up getting on their wrong side, and so when it came time for like uh, a budget renewal for like my position, they just decided to recommend to cut the youth ministry budget, youth minister budget, completely. And I remember going in and sitting down with the pastor, and he uh, actually some of the parents were really upset. The pastor uh, looked at me and he goes, "Listen, he goes, I'm 64. He goes, I'm going to retire in the next two years. I know what they're doing is wrong, but." I'm not going to, I'm not going to stir up this couple's, you know, in my church and their members and like, I don't, they, they, they know a lot of families and I, I just can't, I can't like stand up in this. And so I ended up leaving, um, that situation it was a sad situation and parents like kids were like, why are you, why are you going? And, um, and so I have a feeling that I didn't stay in contact, uh, much afterwards. And so, but I feel like that ended up stirring up some real issues between some groups in the church, but uh, but it was that weird time where I was sitting there listening to a pastor who should have been trying to care for me because I was being treated unjustly, but instead he chose to go, well, I, you know, I'm going to retire and I don't want to like, make my last couple of years really hard. Um, and so, you know, I don't know how you respond when you're in unjust situations. Maybe, uh, maybe you've faced a, a boss uh, like that, or, or maybe a, a situation where a coworker is uh, always glad to really help, uh, you, take your help when you're willing to help them on a project, um, but they're always really quick to take credit for your work. And then when you you ask for help, they just can't seem to find the time. Uh, or maybe it's a bot. Uh, maybe it's a, a landlord. Uh, Boston has a horrible reputation of especially certain landlords that own you know a number of apartments. They they can be really terrible. Um, one, one family I knew, uh, a couple got pregnant and was going to have a baby and they loved their apartment. They were like, we're going to stay here. It's a two bedroom. We're you know, going to have the baby here. And, and the, uh, land and, but the landlord was going to have to treat it for lead, right? Because, uh, he didn't have to up to that point. And he just simply looked at him and said, I'll do it. But if I do it, I'm raising rent $400 a month as soon as it's over. And so he literally forced them to, to leave. Um, landlords can be difficult. Bosses can be difficult. There's, there's no, no person in this room who can't describe or give an example of a situation where you were treated unjustly uh, by someone or uh, in, in power or authority around you. We all face these types of circumstances. But assuming that you can't change the circumstance immediately, the real question I wanted to get at was how do you respond how do you respond in those moments? Because we all face them. And I, I think shy of like, I can't fix this right now, people tend to go to two, one of two ways. One is they just get angry and anxious. And they just 
carry that with them. It's on the surface that's bubbling over all the time, angry, uh, anger and anxiety over this situation. And if you talk to them, you hear about it, they'll tell anyone about it. Um, and, and they just kind of live in this constant state, uh, frantic state. The other, other uh, response that I see is people going, well, I'm just, since I can't change it, I'm just going to act like it doesn't matter. And I'm going to bury it down deeply. I'm just going to put my head down and just keep going. And then it just eats them up internally, right? So you have the external response, the person who carries over an anxiety and like, ah. And then the person who goes, this doesn't bother me. You know, <laughs> they're like this huge stress ball on the inside. Um, in both these cases, it, there's a, a, a missing of, of a point, And that is that suffering can actually serve a purpose. I know that's really hard to, to hear in our, in our culture um, because this idea in our culture of suffering is all suffering's wrong and all suffering must end immediately. The only thing uh, that should happen and can happen in any case of suffering is that it should end immediately. Because if, if you step out of a Judeo-Christian worldview and look at it from a, a secular humanist worldview, suffering has no purpose, real purpose. There's no redemption in it. I mean, it kind of maybe goes along to survival of the fittest and, you know, strengthens the gene pool or whatever, but like, that's not really encouraging in the moment, is it? Right? When you're, well, you know, this is really tough, but survival of the fittest, I'm going to hang in there, right? Um, but in the Christian worldview, it, there's a unique perspective on suffering. It doesn't like change the suffering, make the suffering go away. It's like, it doesn't hurt anymore. It's not difficult, but suffering now begins to have meaning. Trials become tools and they become uh, avenues and catalysts for growth in our life when we look to God. And this is what we find in our text today. To give you a little context, background, last week, um, Pastor Mike preached on <clears throat> chapter 29 of Genesis in through the first half of chapter 30. If you remember our, our main character, Jacob, uh, who, who was name literally means deceiver, scoundrel, or uh, trickster. Like he's, he's a very shady guy. And uh, we, we find him, uh, when I preached a couple weeks ago, he had just uh, stolen his brother's um, birthright and um, his, in his uh, blessing. And his father had like, uh, you know, had freaked out. And his brother said, I'm going to kill him as soon as my dad dies. And so he had to leave. Jacob had to leave everything he knew. He left all his wealth too, by the way, Le- left all that he had. Uh, and, and left for, for safety's sake, also secondly, so that he could go find a, uh, um, a wife among his father's families, uh, family members. And so he went uh, to, back to his father's land, uh, or grandfather's land, Abraham, uh, to find a wife and also to kind of save his life. Um, but Jacob, uh, Jacob lands there. And if you remember the passage from last week, he lands and he meet, instantly spots Rachel, who's According to the passage, really, really beautiful. Not just like beautiful, but like really beautiful. So much so that it's kind of clear Jacob starts to lust in some unhealthy ways. Um, at least over time of like, he can't just wait to, he can't wait to marry her. Finds out her father Laban is a relative and he, he says, well, hey, you know what? You could work for me. You don't have any money, any resources to give me for my daughter. So I'm going to have you work for me. So you work for me for seven years. But it turns out it's interesting how sometimes the, and, and you've seen this in life maybe, the person who is the deceiver, the person who's the trickster, the person who's always one-upping other people and kind of getting around things, they run into someone who's better than they are at it, right? And that's exactly what Jacob runs into. He runs into a big deceiver. And Laban says, yeah, yeah, let's do that. You go ahead and work for my, old, uh, for my youngest daughter, Rachel, for seven years. And then on the night of their wedding, they get, evidently get Jacob super drunk. And uh, he goes in, I mean, there weren't a lot of lights, and goes in, and, and it turns out uh, it was Leah. 
uh, Laban had sent Leah into uh, to, to the wedding uh, and into the uh, wedding bed. And so now uh, Jacob's married to Leah and he's like, oh my gosh. And, and then Laban has this great idea. Hey, you could work another seven years for me for my younger daughter, the one you really love. And so he, he, Jacob agrees and he ends up doing this. And this is where we end up in our text today. He has, so he has uh, Jacob, he's married to Leah and Rachel, but then they have, um, it turns out there's a little bit of a battle royale going on between them with kids. And then they end up just like Sarah, they start bringing in their servants and giving their servant uh, to Jacob to, to, you know, to, to marry and have sex with. So he's basically got four wives now. He's got 11 uh, boys and one, at least one daughter uh, that we know of. And there's possibility by this point he may, um, you know, may not be far from being a, a grandfather even in that culture. And so Jacob um, as, is at this point, and he finally realizes, like, okay, I've got all the, my family. Uh, I've got a whole clan of people. I think we should leave and go back to my father's land. Uh, but then Laban engages with him, as we've already read, and tries to uh, negotiate with him and um, to bring him actually back. And this week's um, passage, we're not going to read chapter 31, but we're going to include 31. Um, which is where after, after working, we've already heard the story of working for Laban uh, for seven more years, he gets, uh, he gets his flocks, right? He's built this huge flock. He's basically taken all of Laban's flocks, despite Laban's best efforts. Uh, he's actually taken Laban's flocks. And then it's interesting, at the ch- beginning of chapter 31, it isn't Jacob just going like, hey, I think we should go. He talks to his wives, Rachel and Leah, and, they, and they're like, oh yeah, our dad's an idiot. Basically is what they say. He's cheated us. He's cheated you. Um, we need to get out of here. Let's go to be with your family now. Um, and so they, they prepare to take off. And, but they know Laban, right? You can't just go up to Laban and go, hey, Laban, you know, we know it's been 20 years. We know that you've experienced tremendous blessing from us being here and from me working for you. But now I'm going to leave and take everybody you know with me. So they, so they wait until Laban is off shearing sheep and he, and he packs everybody up, Jacob packs everybody up and they head out and they get a few days uh, start before Laban actually hears. And what Laban does is he, he instantly responds by, by not just running after him, he gets like this a group in the description is sort of like military men, fighting age men, like to chase them down. And, and it seems like uh, there's, there's a battle coming. There's a fight coming. There's something serious coming. At the very least, he's going to try to make them all come back to him. But then it's interesting, right at the end, God appears to, right before he gets to Jacob, he appears, God appears to Laban in a dream and says, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So, so God protects him in that moment. And then he catches up and he confronts him. And it's so funny, Laban makes, Laban, Laban makes the sob stories. You took my daughters and, and my grandkids and I would have hugged them and kissed them and we would have had a party and it would have been so wonderful and we would have sent you off with mirth and festivities. You know, and I mean, you, you, you could read, hopefully you know Laban by this point, you're like, come on, dude. I mean, who, who was fooled by this? No one. And so finally, they end up making a pact, um, a non-aggression uh, treaty, and, um, and they go off in their separate ways. But not before, um, after Laban had confronted him, Jacob confronts him back and says, very bluntly, you have cheated me for 20 years and changed my salary 10 times. Surely if God had not been with me, you would have sent me off with nothing. So we know who Laban is at this point. All right, so you've seen this un, these unjust circumstances. And I want us to look at uh, three ideas here 
for us to, to root ourselves to trust in uh, during these types of circumstances. One, uh, we need to trust in God's promises that they will not be thwarted. God's promises will not be thwarted. When you and I are in, in difficult circumstances, one of the things that happens to us, right, is we get, we, we get blinders on, like, you know, like horses have to wear blinders. We get blinders and we only see our circumstance. And they seem ultimate. They seem like the definitive thing in our life. And they seem to be the thing that, uh, that is, is keeping us from having any peace or joy or meaning or purpose. And, and so that it can consume us. Uh, instead of seeing God as ultimate in his promises. Laban's offer here results in an agreement to give Jacob part of his ownership of his herd and the potential increase his interest as he goes on. Uh, Jacob gets all the goats uh, that are not totally black and uh, the sheep that are not totally white. Back in ancient shepherd's contracts, it was uh, most contracts were to shepherd the flock with uh, an interest of around 10 to 20% of that flock. But most, uh, most archaeologists, researchers, uh, believe that the percentage of speckled and spotted goats and black sheep, literally, we know what, <laughs> when someone says he's the black sheep of the family, it doesn't say like there's thousands of black sheep and he's just the black sheep. No, there's a reason somebody says he's the black sheep because everyone else is the white sheep. And so uh, there were very few black sheep. Some say as little as 5 or 10% of the sheep were black. Uh, and yet... In this situation, he set up uh, this agreement. Uh, Laban, it, the text gives this idea that Laban had a better end of it, um, but it's clear from, from Jacob's strategy that he was trusting in something more. Now, we're going to find out he, he does some weird science, like uh, agricultural engineering stuff. It's not really based on science, um, but, but it was an intentionality that God himself used. And I believe it, it, it's evidence that he was actually trusting God. So Jacob did what was called this idea, this folk custom of visual impression, the belief that uh, if you put this sort of visual impression in front of an animal while they were mating, that that impression would, would have an impact on the offspring of those, uh, of those animals. Um, now again, not good science, but, um, he was believing, he was believing it was an act of faith. And John Calvin actually says that God revealed to Jacob that this was the means by which God was going to bless the flock. Now, I don't know, but it's pretty clear that, that, uh, Jacob was attempting to do something that did not make a lot of sense, even in that culture. And we don't have to believe in the reason, but we can understand that because it was God's plan and God's promises to Jacob, it worked. Uh, back in, uh, look in 31 verse 5, you have your uh, journal Bible open. Listen to what Jacob says to his wives, Rachel and Leah, who are ready to go back to Jacob's homeland with him. This is what he says. He says, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. Jacob recognized that it was God that had blessed him. God's promises had blessed him and that nothing could stop that. Interestingly enough, listen to the similarity in the language of, of Genesis 28, 15, when God spoke to Jacob and said, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. This is before Jacob had even entered uh, his homeland or the, the, his, uh, Abraham's homeland with, and, and seen Rachel and done any of this. God had promised him, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to accomplish everything that I want to through you. This was a promise. And Jacob lived out that promise and lived under the promise, even though he didn't understand it when it began. 
Um, but now, 20 years later, he could see God's hand in his life. This promise has become real to him. And this is part of what God hopes for you and I. The, the interesting thing about, uh, about uh, Christians is that God doesn't seem to like have this like, favor of like, just protecting Christians from all the hard things in the world, Right? I know there's, a, there's a, like a branch of Christianity that teaches that if you'll just have enough faith and you'll just obey God and believe God, he will make you wealthy, healthy, successful. You'll never have any problems, never have any face any issues, never struggle in any way. The only problem with that is the Bible. Um, but, I mean, sounds great. I'm ready. Sign me up. Anybody else want to go for that? If that's true, I'm like, sign me up. It just is antithetical to what we see in scripture and antithetical to our own suffering savior who through his suffering did glorious things, right? And we see uh, Christians around the world today who are suffering. And, and we can either look at that and go, that's horrible and that should stop immediately and there's no purpose or meaning in any of that and God's not in, in that at all. Or we can go, no, suffering in fact comes in under God's redemptive plans and purposes. And in that suffering, we are meant to cling to the promises of God. The promises are what keep us going. It's no wonder that the angel um, of God speaks to Jacob in a dream in, in chapter 31, verse 13. Listen to what this angel says. I am the God of Bethel. Remember where Bethel was? It was in the wilderness where, where Jacob had just been cast out and yet not gone to uh, Laban yet. I'm God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made me a vow. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. So, so God's reiterating the promise that he had made to him. You know, if you look at this story from one vantage point, uh, the 20 years with Laban were sad, sad and painful. They were filled with deception, dishonesty, theft, fear, retaliation, jealousy, enmity, accusations, and strife. That's what our circumstances can feel like when we are suffering unjustly. But from another view, this is an amazing 20 years. Jacob came to Haran with nothing, did he? didn't he? He had nothing. He shows up. In 20 years, he has a family. He has uh, wives. He has children. He has uh, flocks. He has resources. He has camels. He has donkeys. It's a modern equivalent of a, a man hitchhiking to California and then leaving two uh, with, with nothing in his pocket and leaving two decades later on his private jet with a fleet of cars and a beautiful wife and a family and money bags. Like, that's the picture. And so God was at work here, being faithful to his promises. And when we face unjust circumstances, we need to remember that God's promises will not be thwarted. This allows you, by the way, to be diligent and to trust during these circumstances. If you believe that God's promises are ultimate, then all of a sudden you're able to take the circumstance that feels very ultimate, and you're able to push it down and put it in its proper place. That doesn't mean it's not hard. That doesn't mean it isn't hurt. That doesn't mean that it's not difficult and not crushing you in ways. It just means it's not ultimate. God's promises to you are ultimate. Your ultimate hope and help is the God who is with you. And listen, I believe it's those moments that God's promises meet us the most. Many of you know, um, I read this week that uh, Tim Keller passed away uh, from pancreatic cancer, uh, 72 years old. I think definitely once in a generation type of pastor, preacher, I said this probably 10 years ago, I think 
50 years from now, young pastors and leaders will still be reading his books and listening to his sermons and learning from him. Uh, he was just a uniquely gifted mind, but also incredibly humble and gracious uh, guy. Anytime anybody met him and said, uh, oh, Dr. Keller, Dr. Keller, he said, no, 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 please call me Tim. Just call me Tim. Uh, I met him once uh, in a bathroom, weirdly enough. Um, <laughs> very tall. I did not expect him to be taller than me, but he's like, he was like 6'4". I was like, okay, I did not expect you to be so tall. But very kind, and I saw him talk to a lot of people at the conference I was at. And uh, what was interesting is, as he was, you know, he's passing away, just such beautiful words. He, uh, he looked at his family, and he said, there's no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. What causes someone in that moment of passing away, like they know they're, getting, they're preparing to die, and to look at their family and to, to have such faith? It's because he was trusting in the promises of God. He was longing to see Jesus face to face. How, was his wife, how are his wife and his family enduring now, trusting in God's promises? It can sound like nice platitudes, you know, like the, the bumper sticker uh, Christianity with the nice Bible verse. And there's a reason that people do that. I think, yes, it can be cliche. Yes, it can, it can be over the top, um, you know, coffee mugs or whatever. <laughs> but, the, but the idea is that there are truths there that really matter. There are promises there that we can ground and root our lives in, especially when everything else is falling away. So when we're suffering, it's God's promises that help us, and we need to trust in them. And secondly, God's purpose is always to glorify his, names, his name. It's really hard to believe that in difficult circumstances that God's purpose is to glorify his name. In fact, uh, in those circumstances, I think if you're like me, I would say God feels quite distant from what's happening, partially because it's evil, right? Whatever might be happening, I could see, is, if it's, especially if it's unjust and not just simply enduring some sort of... Uh, arbitrary suffering, but like something that's being done to you evil. Like how could God be in this? How could God use this to glorify himself? And yet that's exactly what he wants us to see. Ironically, back in chapter 30, verse 27, when Jacob was preparing to negotiate to work another seven years, Laban recognized something about Jacob that shows that how God was at work. He says, if I found, uh, sorry, if I found favor in your sight, so Laban is actually a very humble statement, the most humble thing that he says to Jacob, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. So greedy and foolish Laban had learned that God was glorified. God, God gets glory in this because even Laban, as messed up, as selfish, as, as ungodly as he was, couldn't help but recognize that God's hand was on Jacob and that he himself had experienced the blessing of that. This is one of the few places in scripture that doesn't like outrightly condemn divination. It's certainly among uh, the Israelites, it was, it was condemned and not allowed, but in ancient Mesopotamia, actually a lot of the writings that we have that still exist are, are uh, around divination. Um, and so it's interesting, God doesn't, you know, in this moment, God chooses to use this, this pagan practice to actually reveal something to Laban. In essence, showing him that God is glorious. God is awesome. It's funny how this, Jacob has experienced this, Laban, the ungodly Laban recognizing it. 
Uh, his grandfather Abraham had, had experienced that. The Philistine kings recognized that God had blessed Abraham. Isaac experienced it in chapter 26 that uh, the, the Philistines recognized that God had blessed him. And so God is glorifying his name um, in every circumstance. Look at chapter 31, verse 6. So Laban is talking to, or sorry, uh, Jacob's talking to um, Rachel and Leah. He says, you know that I've served your father with all my strength, that your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding seasons of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. So in other words, moment after moment during those years, every time Laban would go, okay, man, his, uh, the spotted or gorilla, he's getting a lot of spotted here. Um, well, we're going to make that the speckled now. You know, not the spotted, you get the speckled ones. And then all of them, are, the breed are speckled, you know? It's very clear that something is happening and it's God, like, like showing off. He's displaying his glory in this situation. Think about it, even through the whole book of Genesis. This, it's, a massive, uh, it's a massive God working out all things according to his glory. All the messy people we've come up with so far, right? I mean, if, if you had hopes that we were going to run into a lot of like superhero, you know, heroes of the faith that we were just all going to want to emulate in every way, this is not the book for you. Uh, in fact, the Bible is really not the Jesus is the only one, right? So this one, one guy, he shows up two-thirds of the way through it. But right now, we're like watching person after person who's set up kind of as a hero, and then they just fail miserably and de deny God and like, you know, cheat their family or whatever. And it's like over and over again. And by the way, we still have 19 chapters to go, and we're going to see some even messier stuff. So <laughs> it just keeps going. It's a theme of like God at work. Uh, in these details, it seems like everything is always going wrong for God's people. Somebody's always fighting. There's some conflict. There's some cheating. Some, uh, somebody's always wronging something, someone else. Everything is falling apart. But when you lift up your eyes and look out at what, what is happening on a higher scale, you can see that God always gets done exactly what he wants to. And he always just, along the way, they, people go, oh, yeah, God did that. Right? They recognize that God is at work. He's always glorifying his name. And even in this passage, he is setting himself up and against the gods of that culture. There's an amazing striking picture here of God's glory versus the pagan gods. Um, when, in chapter 31, when Jacob and Leah and Rachel and their family take off from Laban, Rachel, for some reason, we don't know why, goes in and steals the household gods, steals Laban's little gods, which would have been like statutes of, uh, of some kind. And she just took them. We don't know whether it was anger or spite. We, there's nothing in the text that actually suggests she believed they were a valuable, you know, for, for spiritual purposes or religious purposes. Uh, in fact, what we're going to see later sort of reveals very clearly she does not believe that. Um, but, uh, but maybe she, maybe she thought, you know, they, she, he, dad's cheated us. I'm going to take something that's worth some money. Right. And nothing, you know, you, you build these little statues of gold or whatever they were. And so they were that maybe of value. But Laban catches up with Jacob and Rachel and and Rachel is Laban shows up and he's going to start searching the camp to find his gods. She puts the these gods in, a, in the uh, camel um, saddle and like on the ground and sits on them. 
And when her dad comes in and he's looking around, she says, oh, I'm sorry, I can't get up. The, the way of women is upon me. Which you understand, ladies, you understand what that means. And guys, ask a lady later if you don't know what that means. Um, <laughs> and so she stays seated, right? And Laban like looks all over and then um, he ends up leaving. But what an interesting contrast here uh, between the household gods and the God that had delivered Jacob. By the way, if your God can be God-napped, you probably should get a new God. <laughs> I mean, this, is, this text is meant to kind of like be a little, little bit of funny, right? Of, of like, oh, these great and powerful gods that Laban is giving all his time and energy and focus on uh, can be put in a camel saddle and sat on by a woman who's in her cycle. Like, it's meant to be a, 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 like a, a, an indictment of how pathetic these gods, uh, Laban's gods were. But the God of Jacob is different. Even at the very end when Laban and Jacob make a pact, Laban doesn't make them swear by his household gods. You know what he says in the end of chapter 31, verse 53? He says, let us swear by the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, who is Abraham's brother. May, they, may he judge between us. So he makes him swear. He says, Jacob, let's swear by your God, the God of your grandfather, Abraham, and his brother, Nahor. Let's swear by him. Not, not let's swear by the little gods I, I kind of misplaced. I don't know where they are, you know? <laughs> and so what difference does this make in our circumstances? Is that God is always at work to glorify his name. It means we may not see it in the moment. It means that we may not be able to make sense of it. We, it, we might look and it looks like we can't, even, we can't even imagine how God might try to glorify his name in it. And, and there's no promise. I mean, Jacob went 20 years of suffering, right? Before he like looks back in the rearview mirror and like really realized, oh, God was, God was at work. God was glorifying his name. Look what all God did. And so it might not be that you get to see this in the moment, but, but let me encourage you to do something. As you are praying, let's say of circumstances, a person, situation, and you're like, God, it's just in that. Just can you resolve that? Can you fix that? Can you remove my boss? Can you give me a new job? Whatever it is. As you pray for that deliverance, stop and ask God, how do you want to glorify yourself in this situation? Let that be part of your prayer. Because the sooner you can get in on that, the more peace you're going to have, the more, the more joy you're going to have because you're going to begin to see that something as bad as what you're going through can be turned and used for something good. And that might be God doing something in your own heart and life. That kind of brings us to the third idea here <clears throat> is that God's people will have God's protection. This is a theme running throughout this passage and throughout the entire book. Human beings will let you down over and over again. They will fail you. They will hurt you. Um, even your closest family members will betray you, but God never does. There's a juxtaposition of two ideas here. In chapter 31, verse 5, Jacob says, in essence, to his wives, your father doesn't look, look out for me, but the God of my father does. You hear that language? Your, your father, who was over me, was not looking out for me, but the God of my father is. Chapter 31, verse 7, but God did not permit him to harm me. And then when Laban shows up to, with great power and intent to harm Jacob and forcefully probably bring his family back, um, God shows up to Laban in a dream. And you know what he says? He says, listen, when you, when you get there, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. Right? That was a modern paraphrase. But he basically says, be careful. 
He says, be careful what you do. Don't, don't go in there guns blazing. Don't go in there like you are in charge because I am in charge. And it scared Laban enough to, to whatever malice he had in his heart, whatever he was ready to do, uh, he listened to God. And Jacob realizes um, in chapter uh, 31, 42, that he uh, would have walked away from 20 years of service with nothing except God had been on his side for 20 years. God had protected him for 20 years. God had walked with him. And that if it was up to Laban, Jacob would have been booted out of there without Leah, without Rachel, without his 11 sons, without his one daughter, without his sheep, without his goats, without his uh, camels and any wealth, nothing. He would have walked away empty-handed. And yet God was protecting him, looking out for him. In a real way, God was the good shepherd to this shepherd. Look at verse 31, uh, chapter 31, verse 38 through 40. And this is Jacob's speech to Laban. He goes, these 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. What is, was torn by wild beasts, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand, you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by the day, heat consumed me. And by the cold night, my Sleep fled from my eyes. This is a real picture of what shepherding looked like. I know when we, uh, I know we have a lot of shepherds in the group, right, today. Um, but what do we think of when we think of a shepherd? We think of a shepherd standing out on a hillside, right, in a really nice white bathrobe. And he's, and he's, he's, got, his, he's got his crook, right, and he's standing there just out looking all across the meadow and his beautiful white sheep are before him and he's standing there. That is not the picture. This is the picture. This is the reality of what happened. It was hard. It was difficult. And they needed protection. It was a dangerous job. They needed deliverance. It was hard, messy, dangerous, sweaty, cold, hot work. Yet God protected him. And in our circumstances, God protects us as well. One of the beautiful things that you see over and over in scripture is that God, there is nothing will, that will happen to God's children apart from God's plan. Nothing. And that protection may not mean protection as in, oh, nothing's going to ever hurt you. Nothing's ever going to be hard. He didn't deliver him from cold nights. God didn't deliver Jacob from hot days. God didn't deliver Jacob from uh, all the threats that came against him. He just ultimately protected them, him through them. And when you look at passages like Ephesians 6 and the armor of God, the armor of God is not set up so we are, are completely impenetrable and we can never be hurt by anyone or any circumstance. No. The passage says that we are to put on the armor of God that we might be able to stand firm basically in the day of testing. So the testing's coming. We're going to go through hard circumstances. We're going to go through difficult circumstances, but God has equipped us and he has promised us to protect us. In fact, Romans 8 promises us that, that nothing in this universe, not even life, not death itself, can separate us from God's love. You are protected. And think about how that helps you in the moment of unjust circumstances and suffering. Think about how God's promises to you, God's purpose to glorify his name and God's protection of you all work together to help you be able to endure. I don't know if you've ever compared the front of a tapestry to the back. 
my uh, my parents had a, a small one. It was not expensive, but uh, my mom, had, I think, had gotten it from her grandmother and they hung it on the wall. And I remember, uh, I remember the first time I picked it up and I like looked at the backside. If you've never done it, it looks very different. <laughs> you know, you'd think like it would be like a negative image. One color is on one side and then the backside of the tapestry is like the other color. No, it's the, on the one side. In fact, beautiful tapestries hang in some of the greatest museums in the world because they are a work of art. But it's not the backside that's displayed, right? <laughs> because the backside back is often ugly. I mean, you've got knots and co- weird colors all tied together, and it just, it just looks like something went wrong. <laughs> if somebody hung it up, you'd be like, oh, good job, you know? <laughs> but it's the other side. And, and you and I are living on this side of the tapestry, we're looking at the knots and the difficulty and the circumstances and we're going, I can't see this. I can't understand it. But God is always at work weaving together a beautiful tapestry. And this is where God's promises, God's plan and purpose to glorify his name and our, and our protection that we get from him all weave together with what he's doing. And I believe some of you today just need to hear that for the circumstances you're in. You're going through something really hard right now. Maybe you're enduring unjust circumstances from your boss or or another person. And you can feel like there's no relief. And I would just encourage you. I'm not saying don't try to end it. I think that's weird if you're like, well, I just kind of want to keep going in this as long as I can. Uh, So so it's okay to pray. It's okay to, to, to look for an end or a relief from it. But don't let that become your peace. Don't let that be your hope because there are no promises that you're not going to get out of this and get right into something else. What you need is something that endures like God's promises, his purposes, and his protection. That's the hope of the gospel today. That on the cross, we see God's promises. It's it's one of the interesting things uh, Paul says in First uh, Corinthians that all the promises of God are yes in Christ. All of God's promises are yes in Christ. So you've, if you're like, well, I don't know how many promises to think of. I don't know which promises to claim or think about. Just go to Jesus, <laughs> right? It's all found in him. It's all found through him. He died on the cross and has made great promises to you. But he's also promised that your life matters, and listen, we, our congregation, it's, it's hard to believe it's uh, been four years, but our congregation lost a young member about four years ago. Just an awful tragedy. But I think about Tim's, Timothy's life, and I go, his life glorified God. Everyone who knew Timothy knew how much the Lord had, had worked in his life and how, much, and, and how much he loved the Lord. His life glorified God. That's the greatest hope any of us could have. And then finally, to know that God will carry you through. He will not leave you nor forsake you until he has accomplished all he has for you, right? I love uh, Philippians 1. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And you need to trust that. That not your boss, not your worst enemy can take that from you. That is secure in Christ. We're going to respond together now by taking communion If you are a follower of Jesus, uh, communion is meant to be that regular reminder of these promises that God has for you. 
that he has done everything that's needed to bring you into his family, that, that on the night that he was betrayed and was to die on the cross for your sins, he took the cup, the symbol of his blood, and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the, he took the bread and he said, this bread, this, this is my body broken for you, which will be broken on the cross. And, and so in a very real way, it's, I, I love this. It's not, uh, it, it's not that Jesus just says, remember or think about, but actually gives us a tangible physical reminder because we are physical human beings. So as you take the bread and take the cup, remember what Christ has done for you. If you're not sure about where you stand with Christ today, you're not sure if you're a Christian or you're just exploring, we're glad you're here today, but communion is for those who have taken that step, who've experienced new life in Christ. And so over this next song, um, if you're a Christian, we'd encourage you to make your way to the front, sort of go out those doors. We have to take communion outside, unfortunately, um, because no food or drinks allowed in here, but uh, take communion and then you can make your way in back through the back door. If you're not a follower of Christ, you're not sure where you are, you can walk with the people around you and just kind of make your way around um, or you can stay where you are you can pray you can be seated you can also mark on your connection card and we would love to follow up with you uh, throughout the rest of the service and after the service there will be a prayer team over here uh, to, to pray with anyone that would like prayer today um, let's go ahead and stand and let's uh, let's pray together Father, we are, we are weak. We are so subject to look at our circumstances and see them as ultimate. When we are suffering, that source of that suffering can seem overwhelming and powerful to us. And yet, God, you invite us in. You invite us up. You invite us to rest in your promises, to know we belong to you, and that nothing, absolutely nothing can take us away from you. We thank you, Jesus, that you secured this on the cross, that your body and your blood once and for all time settled this. Our feelings can't change it, our thoughts can't change it, our circumstances can't change it. You have done it and it is finished. So now, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. Open our eyes to see this more clearly. Open our hearts to receive it and believe it. In your name.